Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Ask a Leader. Welcome to the May 6, 2014 edition of Ask a Leader. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, and I'm dedicating today's program to Tim Carpenter, a movement activist originally from Orange County and later involved in national movement politics, founder of the Progressive Democrats of America. He died of cancer a week ago last Monday at the age of 55. He organized us all from the lowly local volunteer to the heady political leader and uh, celebrity uh, A-list. We all miss him. He was a Santa Ana school teacher and relocated to organize nationally, as I was saying, uh, out of Massachusetts and out of D.C. You can look for PDAs uh, on their website for more about the accolades, what we're missing about him, as well as um, on the nation. There's much many eulogies coming out for him. Now... For the first part of today's show, please dress comfortably, turn down everything on, turn it off, or just get quiet, get the most out of my first guest, Yuri Sinbergs, American Vini Yoga trainer, who will return us to what are the essential qualities of yoga, as well as present some very special upcoming training opportunities at UCI. In the second half, we'll pick up the pace, shift the paradigm with Michelle BAME, Southern California Regional Director of the California High-Speed Rail Authority. Big transit plans in a period where public preferences are very dynamic. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My first guest today is Uris Zinbergs. Uris began practicing yoga in 1993, was in 1996 certified by Barry Kraftsell of the American Vina Yoga Institute to teach asana, pranayama, and chanting in the same yoga tradition of his own teacher, and I hope I'm going to be kind to all the terms and names, uh, the teacher T.K.V. Desi Kachar. Yuris has also completed American Vini Yoga Institute's three-year training course in the application of yoga as a therapeutic process for managing uh, acute and chronic disease. He shares the living teachings of Krishna Macharya, Mach- Macharya uh, emphasizing that the result of appropriately placed, accurately, uh, consistently practiced integrated yoga techniques, which can be clearly seen in an individual's transformation, about which I ho- hope to sort out in the intervening time with Yuris. Yuris is a registered yoga teacher with Yoga Alliance, which acknowledges the completion of his yoga teacher training with an approved and active registered yoga school. So he teaches sessions in Newport Beach and Irvine when he's not out and about at retreats around California and way beyond. He joins me in Studio A, uh, eventually with his assistant, Stephanie Sutherland. Namaste, Yuris. Good morning. Good morning. Well, in India, uh, Krishna Makcharya developed Vini Yoga, yoga as we know it. It's now a century and a, a, a decade or so since the late great Vivekananda introduced yoga to the new world. Briefly, Yuris, the oversized essay question, how far have we come since the, in, the introduction of yoga at the turn of last century? Well, that's a very, very big question. And, and by no means am I any uh, great authority on yoga. I can only speak from my own experience of uh, of uh, t- uh, teaching 20 years in Orange County 
and my uh, exploration of yoga uh, in my life. So I think uh, that uh, uh, Vivekananda and his legacy has uh, has uh, uh, seeded and flourished and is is flowering in our time. You know, there are many uh, many of his centers that he established throughout the country. Uh, there are also other uh, uh, great spiritual teachers uh, who came after Vivekananda, and they have also created uh, uh, wonderful flowering centers uh, for yoga practice. Um, also, we can thank Krishnamacharya for uh, for his teachings in India that have that have traveled uh, to us in America, uh, specifically through his students BKS Iyengar, Patabi Joyce. Also, TKV Deskachar, his son, and uh, Sri Vatsa Ramaswamy. So these are all uh, great yoga teachers that are uh, that are in uh, in our time. So yoga, over the, within the last hundred years, as I see it, has uh, has clearly flourished. And I, I just I was there was a beautifully written piece uh, in the New York Times that talked about how Vivekananda was able to he all of the uh, illiterati were totally had their heads turned and they rethought everything they if they they could have i think it was um um aldo huxley who was saying if he could have just spent just had a moment just to shake his hand after having read all these things that he he would have been uh, that's all he would have needed for the rest of his life for his life list but uh, that they were i'm uh, uh i'm trying to think of uh, gertrude stein all, a lot of them were just they were never the same it was such a profound impact and it was uh, it was uh, he was a thinking man's woman's. Uh, uh, he was a guru in 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 the pure sense and the most unassuming sense of his introduction of yoga to the to the new world. Clearly, clearly, uh, uh, Vivekananda came from the Swami order, that is a uh, 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 old order that you know has been around for a long thousands of years. So Vivekananda uh, clearly came from that order and. Uh, and uh, as I as I've read his biography and and uh, uh, listened to lectures from uh, from his yoga centers, uh, he had a wonderful ability to inspire others to reflect on themselves and bring forth uh, the best that is in one person and bring it forth into the world. So so clearly his uh, his yoga message inspired many of his time, and the people that he inspired at his time. Uh, clearly have continued to inspire even people like myself you know one of my first experiences uh, with yoga was in high school when I had an opportunity to read uh, The Razor's Edge by William Somerset Mom mm. which deals with a young person's uh, personal discovery of himself uh, and you know during the first world war you know and afterwards so Clearly, the influence of yoga, and in particular, Vivekananda and his influence on America, uh, it continues. Well, and as you're talking about this lineage, which it is, it's, uh, it's looking at the, the, the transformative power of what they were, how they transformed these thinkers, how they're transforming practitioners currently. Let's... Let's talk about these integrated uh, practices, engaging the mind and body on multiple levels. And why, what you could tell us are the essential qualities of the American Vinaya Yoga Institute's practice. Well, sure, that's a wonderful question. I'd simply like to add that. Yes, uh, please. Uh, one comment is, you know, uh, a teacher 
never knows where the teaching ends. So clearly you can see how Vivekananda has influenced uh, us well past his own life. So the, the power of uh, good teaching and clear communication has a very long-lasting imprint on, uh, on us. With regards to your question of, uh, of uh, Krishnamacharya, uh, so he comes from uh, uh, another long lineage. Krishnamacharya's family uh, have traced their ancestry back to uh, a ninth century uh, uh, monk by the name of Nathamuni. And so, again, Krishnamacharya, who uh, brought yoga to America in the 50s uh, from BKS Iyengar was his student. Uh, even he comes from a long lineage of authentic uh, yoga masters, and uh, so we're very great. We're very uh, fortunate to have uh, the remnants of Krishnamacharya's teaching uh, in our country. And well, I I want to, without the, the risk of being a bit obsequious here with my guest, I, this this connection that you have, it's. I would think a rarity that yoga no, yoga practice is a it's a ubiquitously offered kind of uh, of undertaking around and not not all instructors uh, trainers are uh, uh, equally endowed with this kind of l- link to the the tradition over the many centuries. So I don't know is there a is there a way to find out the trainer's pedigree or um, in terms of uh, training and and. A commitment, or uh, we just have to know that by word of mouth from uh, your followers. Well, so there are many uh, living, authentic lineages uh, already in America. Uh, I mentioned uh, Swami Satchitananda uh, has Yogaville on the East Coast. Uh, we have Baba Hari Das, who's on the West Coast with uh, Mount Madonna Center. Uh, we also have uh, the Self-Realization Fellowship Centers throughout the United States. So clearly, there are many authentic. Uh, flowing uh, lineages of yoga traditions established in the United States. But there's also a very uh, popular uh, type of yoga that uh, is basically uh, evolved from some yoga asanas that uh, many people experience in gyms. And so uh, I remember a a teacher a long time ago said that, uh, you know, cream always rises to the top. We all start somewhere. And uh, those who choose, uh, or for whatever reason, they can dive deeply into a a living, authentic uh, yoga uh, lineage. And just one technical thing that I I couldn't quite find out. The trainer or the teacher is leading, what do we call that person that follows in the practice, in your sessions? The trainer or the teacher that is lead, the leading, and then what what do we call the person that's following you? The person, well, I it depends. Okay, that's the, <laughs> the that's the reason my usually question. it's a, usually it's a, like in the in the yoga tradition the the guru is the teacher, and the chela is the the student. Uh, maybe more formally in here in the United States, I if I mean if you're more of an asana teacher or a uh, or a teacher of yoga with a non-specific tradition, I, I guess you'd be called an, an acharya. Acharya, or is a student, is that the word used when we're calling the receptionist? <laughs> no, the acharya would be the teacher. Oh, acharya. So what do we call the person following? The acharya. student would be, 
Hmm, in Sanskrit, that's a good question. Well, we'll think. We'll <laughs> tuck that one there and come back to that. A student, so because I, I thought I, I'd want to get the parlance down, but I, I couldn't, uh, for the life of me, uh, nail that one down. So, uh, for those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on Radio KUCI eighty-eight point nine FM in Irvine, and where asanas are being set up around the world on the web at KUCI.org. My guest is Yuri Zimbergs, Vinny Yoga trainer, affiliated in centers not just in OC but all over all over around the world, in fact, and uh, assisting him at any point could be Stephanie Sutherland, who's just joined us in Studio A. Well, this living transmission, or you call it the Sampradaya. Sampradaya. It's a living transmission of information that comes from a teacher to a student. Well, there it is. That's the authentic teaching. And uh, we've talked about matching a trainer with the student, the follower. So... um, that let's talk then about then that that very that living transmission. I think that's what Vivekananda was talking about. Is sometimes he, it was that more deeply spiritual aspect, and so uh, that's where we're headed. I guess um, while we're talking about that, I know that you concern yourself too with with the mind, uh, with the body, uh, and the the physique and uh, afflictions that. Your, uh, we'll call it your aging followers. Mm-hmm. I mean, sliding scale. I mean, it could be anybody. And so that's. I, I want to get to a little bit of a sort of. A, if you're you're seeing a a kind of a shift in your uh, practice with your followers, because I'm still coming up short on the the verbiage here, is uh, over time you're able to witness what people's body maintenance is presenting with the kinds of choices. Now we've all heard a lot about diet and. Uh, how they're ambulating, how they're getting around with, uh, with you know, in their sedentary kind of lifestyles. But we also now have some real tight connections with electronic small components. So perhaps you're seeing where that is also tweaking, having you tweak what you're doing and you're having to be ever vigilant uh, with your clientele about. So that's a very, very uh, rich question. Immediately what comes to my mind are the uh, the ancient uh, yoga teachings, which would explain uh, the root of this message uh, or the answer to your question, which is uh, things are real, yet things are always changing. We cannot uh, necessarily stop change from happening. However, we do have the power to uh, affect the direction of change. So all of us are changing, you know, once I was 18 and now I jokingly say I'm 26, right? So I can't stop that from happening and, you know, and so on. But what I can do is I can, I can affect the direction of my own change. So as we, uh, as we mature and age in our lives, the things that we do change as well. So we don't behave like uh, seven-year-olds or 12-year-olds or 14-year-olds now. We behave as an adult. So one of the Krishnamacharya's uh, one of his one of his uh, main teachings was to adapt yoga for groups and individuals according to their ability, their need, and their interest. Okay. So and that I know. So I I had the the privilege of of joining in one session with Yuri's last week. So I I could see how attuned you were to various. I think the demographic was probably around. What the late forties and maybe early seventies there, and certainly yeah. you were tuned into some knee injuries and uh, muscles pulled and yes. general um, sort of uh, 
a drop-off of flexibility with some of the... Maybe so the, oh. in, our, in our tradition, if I can say, in our tradition, which, which uh, Krishnamacharya named Vini Yoga, and the, the name Vini Yoga literally means appropriately applied techniques to the individual, you know, to, to promote integration. And so what, where, where we're trained uh, with the American Vinyoga Institute is the brilliance of Krishnamacharya and his son, TKV Deskachar, which is to approach a person from many different levels. And that approach comes from, uh, from the teachings of Ayurveda, uh, which is the sister science of yoga, and also from uh, the Upanishads, which are the, the very ancient teachings which come at the end of the, the old Vedas. And, and in the Upanishads, one model is, you know, the human being consists of a physical body, which are the muscles and the joints. The human being also has a nervous system, uh, which is which activates the muscles and the joints. Uh, the human being also have has a cognitive function. A human being is also able to make decisions. Also, we all have uh, we all have deep patterns, uh, emotions, and uh, we all have, uh, according to to this view, we all have a, a desire for happiness, unending happiness. And so, what we do is we ap- we apply simple techniques to affect a person on many different levels, whether they're musculoskeletal, neurological, cognitive, psychoemotional, or spiritual. So we layer that into our practices with individuals uh, and with groups. So that's that's what you experienced in our class. So for those of you who joined us, you're hearing from the, a, a real special a dimension here of the yoga practice with Yuris Vinbergs, Zinbergs, I'm sorry, with a, a Vinny yoga trainer here. And uh, we'll get a chance here to talk about how you can uh, join him at sessions nearby, or we're going to have a number of opportunities with the Yoga Day coming up. It'll be on the 17th, and as well as a very extensive 200-hour program presented this summer at UCI. So I, that's a that's a seg. So there's ongoing. You have sessions throughout, and they can find out from your web page. Yes. Uh, if they are interested, uh, so we have ongoing sessions. Uh, if you're interested in uh, the classes that I teach in Orange County, uh, or if you're interested in this uh, upcoming 200-hour, uh, it's a Yoga Alliance teacher training program that's happening this summer with association with UC Irvine, and it's happening at the Anita Recreation Center. Uh, you can uh, find me at uh, yogawithuris.com. Uh, you can also, uh, we'll give you some contact information on air. Um, so yes, there's a lot going on and, you know, the, the, the programs that we have are linked with our American Vini Yoga Institute and they're also, uh, continuing education programs, uh, which will link you with my own yoga teacher, Gary Kraftsau, uh, and, and really, uh, uh bring uh, a greater depth of understanding of yoga to help yourself or to help those around you. I think, I'm not sure what more, um, to answer now, as far as um, if anybody's really want to jump in on the training, I noted on their website that today's a deadline for a little little dent out of your uh, tuition. So that's a you you might want to race to that website, folks. Um, there's also the vinyoga dot uh, com a website, but that uh, but I you you give a lovely sort of a sweeping kind of lineage and connect and breakdown of how this practice can have more meaning, more uh, resonance throughout 
uh, every uh, aspect of one's daily living. And so I, um, I'm not sure I can uh, breaking it down anymore is useful. That other than having people uh, take some time to consider where and with whom they would like to take up this practice. And um, I I know it's difficult to get a a routine established, but the the routine is what helps, I guess, develop that connection with the practice. So I guess um, you start where you are is what all the, the Buddhist nuns tell us. And so I guess you start your practice where you are. How can you sort of give everybody uh, encouragement that anytime, uh, anyhow, it's, it's, it behooves one to, to take better care? Well, that's a great question. And many, many people say, I just, I want to start or I don't have the, I just don't have the time or I can't fit it into my schedule. So, you know, I hear that all the time. I, one of my funniest comments is that, uh, uh, if someone comes up to class and says that's the best class ever, I think that they're saying I'm never going to see you again. So, <laughs> oh <laughs> but, no, no, it's, I think it's a comparative well, analysis. And so, actually, it was a referral uh, for well, me to here's you. The, here's the easy answer. The easy answer is that you know most people every day brush their teeth, right, to keep the teeth and gums and healthy. a percentage floss them before sure, brushing. Okay, sure. Which and is, this is the flossing. As yes, you know we hardly ever skip a meal. We mostly take a bath every day. Every day of our lives, we are performing maintenance on ourselves. So the funny thing is that uh, even though your teeth might be very clean, consider your muscles and your joints. Consider your nervous system. More importantly, consider your breathing, which is something that you do every moment that you're alive. Where's the maintenance for the muscles and the joints? Where's the maintenance for your own pulmonary function? Where is the maintenance for your cognitive function? What yoga can provide are simple, short practices that you can do daily, that they don't have to be anything other than like washing your body or brushing your teeth or having a meal. And if you do them consistently over a long period of time, you will definitely notice an impact on yourself. And also you may impact those around you as well. And... I just want to, it's a bit of a pitch from my perspective. My uh, experience is that yoga provides a cue to us to correct some kind of coping that is not healthy. It, it's a cue to consider posture in the moment, a cue to disengage from a, a, a an emotional cycle that's ramping up, a moment to step back and not ramp up what's an unhealthy uh, aspect of our daily living. And I, I think that's what helped me incorporate that into, I won't say daily, but um, but to a, a more increased frequency in my uh, weekly Clearly. living. And so that, that cue is really vital so that there isn't more uh, disrepair done to one's system, whether it's the skeletal system, poor posture, l- losing range of motion or uh, becoming emotionally ensnared in some unproductive kind of dynamic that the the breathing or some other simple kinds of measures can and that's I know that's a very superficial you you can shake your head at me but <laughs> uh, but I think that that cue is maybe what could be incentive for people to realize uh, uh, some kind of informal yoga practice is a 
extremely beneficial measure for their best sense of well-being. Indeed. The the one teaching of yoga is called Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. And in the second chapter, Patanjali clearly states, Tapaha Svadhyaya Ishvara Pranidhana Kriya Yoga, which is basically uh, doing something every day for yourself, which requires a little bit of austerity. It requires a little bit of focus. It does. Also studying yourself every day. And also having faith. Those are the three uh, pillars of of Kriya Yoga, the Yoga of of Patanjali. And so if we do something in that manner every day, and it doesn't have to be long or painful or arduous, and if we do it consistently for a long period of time, we'll definitely uh, gain more clarity. Gain more clarity. Absolutely. Yuri Zimbergs, I'm so glad that you could avail us some of your time while you're putting all of these projects practicing uh, ongoing here and giving such vital kinds of uh, in, uh, instruction is a is a shallow expression of that but of, of of connecting with those who want to deepen their their own mind body connection so i i thank you so much for being on ask a leader today i want to bring up my next guest here shortly michelle bame the southern california Regional Authority uh, for the High Speed Rail is going to be on the show in just a little bit. Thank you for joining us. As I said, that was Yuri Zinbergs with the American Vini Yoga Institute, who will be instructing also ongoing here as well as throughout uh, the the region and beyond. We'll look for May seventeenth Yoga Day at the Ark and the summer uh, instruction sessions. Thanks for joining us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone, to Ask a Leader. Fresh off of the 75th year commemoration of the Los Angeles Union Station, we turn away now from the past and press on into the future toward a California with a high-speed rail with my guest, Michelle Bain. I wanted to explore this for some time. The more profound aspects of high-speed rail uh, have been covered with the some... So a shortage of really interesting information, so it's a real pleasure to have on Michelle today. She is um, the Southern California Regional Director for the California High-Speed Rail Authority and a board member of both the Los Angeles and Orange County chapters of the Women's Transportation Seminar. Michelle Bames, 20 years of experience include the engineering firms of CH2M Hill and URS. Among the many projects she's collaborated are the I-15 Corridor uh, system master plan, the I-710 corridor, and Alameda corridor east. She worked directly with the agencies, including uh, Los Angeles County Metropolitan Transportation Authority, Port of Los Angeles, California Department of Transportation, Nevada Department of Transportation, San Diego Association of Governments, Alameda Corridor East Construction Authority, and I go on and on. So you can see her credentials in pulling off this major project with her colleagues throughout the state. As Southern California Regional Director for the California High-Speed Rail Authority. She is a member of the Board of Directors for the Lausanne. It's Joint Powers. I'm sorry? You're there? Yes, I am. Okay, yes. Uh, With the uh, 350-mile Los Angeles-San Diego-San Luis Obispo Rail Corridor, she co-chairs a regional transportation uh, CEO group focused on high-speed rail issues and participates in both the Southern California and statewide regional 
rail partners working groups which focus on rail planning in California, and that that's everywhere. Originally from Huntington Beach, uh, she did her work, um, attended college at Cal State Long Beach. She comes to us today from Los Angeles. Welcome to the show, Michelle Bain. It is great to be here, Claudia. Thank you for uh, the great intro. Well, thank you for, uh, I think this is this is heady work with the, the political uh, mainstream giving you nothing but uh, headwinds, and so I, I wanted to... Uh, to take this opportunity on Ask a Leader today to to bring up what I think it's a it's a the WPA a Works Progress Administration size kind of a project. So I'm first of all I I'm just I couldn't help but start with the as you continue to work on and promote this massive project, the first of its kind of U.S. which will be years in the making. Don't you just wish, Michelle, you could just board a nice, sleek, high-speed rail car and be in the Central Valley or the Bay Area in a couple of hours to get to all those meetings? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, One of the things that I find in my work is and and have recognized through the work that I do in Southern California is just how great the need for this type of transportation is for the state of California. Um, We're talking about planning a system that would allow you, for instance, allow me, for instance, to travel um, from the Los Angeles area to the Antelope Valley, both areas that I oversee in my management, and I could make that trip on a high-speed rail train in in about 20 minutes. Um, As it stands today, that trip takes me about over an hour and a half in a car. So that's the type of change that we're looking at for the state of California and really providing an option for um, the residents and visitors to this state to uh, travel around the state through a very different uh, method. And in these times there, it's very interesting, the whole preferences in transit are changing, and as a uh, an expert I consult with uh, in transportation economics was, was bringing to my attention that now we're seeing a slip, uh, a reduction of, uh, throughout the Southern, Cal- Southern California Associate uh, Associated governments, the SCAG groups, are showing that uh, 19% of trips are now by pedestrians. Cars are going down. I think bikes are going up, if I have anything to say about uh, reinforcing that idea. Uh, and so uh, how is the fixed rail trending at this point? Uh, fixed rail has been trending generally up and to the right for the last decade. Um, we've seen ridership increases on LA Metro's light rail system, on BART's system, on the Caltrain system. Um, we currently in California have several of the most heavily ridden Amtrak lines in the nation. The Losan Corridor is the second most heavily ridden line. The Capital Corridor is the third most heavily ridden line in the nation. That's Not amazing. Just, yeah. And, and the San Joaquin Corridor is the fifth most heavily ridden Amtrak line in the nation. So um, we are definitely seeing uh, people looking for transit um, to support uh, their need for mobility across the state. Um, And those are terrific uh, changes and trends because they coordinate with what you've meant. They, they, They dovetail very nicely with trends towards active transportation, both pedestrians, um, and bikes, um, and towards uh, our vision as a state of California of building a truly um, integrated statewide rail network. 
And when you bring up how heavily used those Amtrak, Amtrak links are in California, that system is still beholden to the priority system where cargo uh, takes priority over passenger rail. And we're, once the high-speed rail is in operation, there will be a different priority system. There, will be, there won't be that competition with cargo. So that uh, I think the efficiency isn't just in the speed, but we, 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 we don't see ourselves getting sidetracked while the cargo moves ahead and then we get back on. It's, and there would be even a greater uh, incentive and interest in using the fixed rail option. Correct. Um, when, when we in the transportation uh, world look at how to lure more people into uh, transit, one of the barriers there is the on-time performance. And as you've mentioned right now, our passenger rail and our freight rail systems share the same set of infrastructure. They operate on the same set of rails. And California high-speed rail, we are building a brand new railroad for the state of California brand new rail lines that will be utilized for passenger services across the state. And so we will not have that issue with the traffic, quote unquote, on the rail lines that exist right now. As we move passengers to the high-speed system, we will also be making improvements to the conventional system as well to improve um, that situation and the better that we do on the conventional rail side in terms of on-time performance, certainly the more riders we will have on that system. And the better we do on that conventional system with regards to on-time performance, the better our freight rail system operates and supports our economy. So it's really all big, a big uh, continuum um, that uh, sets us up for future sustained growth for the state of California. Well, let's let's now uh, move into the environmental impact. It's obvious that we're uh, seeing we'll see a, a carbon uh, footprint change with uh, adoption of more fixed rail versus people using the um, the air or the automotive options. I'd like to explore with occupancy of the trains. Uh, we know, like the the uh, energy efficiency for buses, if you get at least nine passengers, you're, you're, you're d- delivering a, a bonus here on the energy efficiency. So could you break down what is the, uh, would be the, the high-speed rail uh, energy efficiency with, with, with passengers so we can envision where we're going to start to see a, um, our carbon footprint start to decrease with the outlay of energy used? Well, certainly as people shift from uh, greenhouse gas-emitting modes of transportation to um, electric or other modes of transportation, you're going to see that shift. Um, And, you know, we're looking at basically um, 10 million trips per year in the year 2025, moving up to potentially 35 million trips per year. Um, in 2040. These are trips that will be taken off our conventional system and out of the greenhouse gas emitting uh, types of transportation onto the electric high-speed rail system. And that's estimated to reduce the vehicle miles traveled in those years, about 2040, by over 10 million vehicle miles traveled per day. Um, So as you can imagine, that has a significant reduction in the greenhouse gas emissions associated with it. Um, And uh, in 2022, 
when we first plan to operate the train, uh, we estimate that we would be eliminating um, a quarter of a million or more metric tons of CO2 equivalents from the atmosphere, from being emitted into the atmosphere. Um, and it just goes up from there. And that is the, the, the leg that between the, in the Central Valley then, Fresno to, to? Fresno to the San Fernando Valley. San Fernando Valley. So that's a, that's a huge stretch. That's a 300-mile stretch, yes. Which we would all be happy not to have to do on the surface. Uh, and and uh, it's, well, I, 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 I quickly allude to the uh, how much more productive we are if we're not uh, clamping down on our steering wheel in that long valley trip. <laughs> and we're, doing, we're on a faster rail to, to get us between those two points. So uh, I, I'd like to find out then, um, so with... Over that time, you're giving us many, many decades, uh, uh, well, several decades before this complete system is in place. We're going to see uh, some technologies change. What will the fuel mix be at the beginning? Will it change by the time the whole system is in place? So we're running an electric train. So that is never going to change. We are always going to be running an electric train. What we're hopeful of is, is that over the course of decades, as our, our project rolls out, that we will be producing more and more uh, sustainable electricity, solar, wind, um, and other methane gas and other options. And so as we draw that electricity from the grid, it will just be getting greener and greener as the years go on. And not the methane so much as the, the other alternatives. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's the production through the dairy industry, ah, actually. The so it is a, a sustainable method. Okay, okay. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Michelle Bain. Southern California Regional Director of the California High Speed Rail Authority here on Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine at train depots around the state, around the world, on the web at KUCI.org. And we're talking about the first, there's one link, San Fernando Valley to Fresno, and the reason for this is, I know lots of transportation planners and politicians are looking at the metropolitan areas where they're uh, are there is a, a higher demand for the the rail connection. However, you need to get started pronto with the available funds, and so it was it it that you are beholden to where you can get the, the the quickest start with the segment where the planning, the land acquisition are more straightforward. So that is that not the reason for your starting with the first link? Correct. Um, there are several things going on here. We have an availability of funds that we can utilize to construct right of way. Um, but beyond that, one of the other, two of the other considerations is number one, we want to build for distance. We wanted to start building the most mileage for our dollar that we could possibly build. And where it's long and straight and flat in the Central Valley, we get more miles per dollar invested in the infrastructure than we would as, as we're going through, for instance, the mountains, um, the Tehachapi Mountains, uh, north of the LA metropolitan area. So that's number two reason. The number three reason is, is that we will need a section, a long, flat, straight section of the high-speed rail in order to test our trains to get them certified to operate in the nation and in the state of California. These are, of course, the first 
super high-speed trains that would right. be operating in the United States. And so we need that track that we will be building in the Central Valley in order to do that. It's the best place to test and certify those trains for operation. Well, I noticed on the high-speed rail website that you have uh, this lovely graphic of all these windmills that are are they intended to be part of the the uh, energy provision and they are incorporated into the right-of-way for the high-speed rail project? Um, at this juncture, we are looking for opportunities to bring uh, potentially uh, energy generation, um, additional energy generation capacity to the state of California. However, if you travel to the northern end of the Antelope Valley, which is an area that the high-speed rail will travel through after it crosses the Tehachapi's, there is a green energy generation area right now there okay. with a whole bunch of uh, wind farms as well as solar farms. And so that picture is representative of the high-speed rail system traveling through that particular area. And we're obviously going to be the beneficiaries of all of that energy that's being generated there um, in order to um, power the train. So we we go from that source, the, the windmills, to the uh, methane that we see in the, the – I mean, it's all there. It's, it's all there all, in the state of the, California, all, yeah. All there. Well, uh, well, let's talk about the funding. It's a, it's certain, that's the one that's getting most of the attention as opposed to some of the um, – well, the other uh, the other easy and fun to think about features. But the, you're, you do have an, a tremendous headwind with this. Jerry Brown, Governor Jerry Brown – uh, up for re-election this year. He's been a real visionary to just uh, spend a whole lot of political capital on this. So I, uh, it's the private funding is what you're going to have to rely on a bit more because the, you're not getting this kind of federal support that other countries are giving their high-speed rail projects, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to cover this at all. Is it's There's some pretty graphic uh, comp, uh, juxtapositions of our antiquated rail, fixed rail system versus what other countries have moved way out of the station with, the sleeker, faster, more efficient kind. So uh, the, we we don't have enough visionaries. There's not the same sort of political capital that people are willing to spend on this massive of a public uh, uh, infrastructure project. So uh, let's talk about the extent to you, that you see, though, as one for one source, that Assembly Bill 32 that deals with... Um, uh, the cap-and-trade legislation, that you're going to be competing with a lot of other state-funded entities. How are you doing with that at this point? Um, the governor has ma made a proposal in January to use a portion of the cap-and-trade funds um, for the high-speed rail system. Uh, we have very direct um, impacts in terms of reducing greenhouse gases, which are the intent attended use for the cap-and-trade um, monies. Uh, we are going through the process right now. The state goes through a budgeting process, so um, we are waiting now for the May revise to come out, and then obviously the legislature would weigh in and vote on the ultimate budget for the state. And so at this juncture, um, we just are making sure that people um, recognize some of the statistics with regards to greenhouse gas reductions um, associated with our project. And, and we're certainly hopeful that, um, that, uh, that some of the cap-and-trade monies um, could be utilized for high-speed rail in the future. Michelle, can you put any kind of dollar amount on what you think that 
could be uh, that you could get from that source, or just some idea. How, um, uh, in in the governor's uh, proposed 2014-2015 budget, he proposed three hundred million dollars for rail modernization, of which two hundred and fifty million of that would go for the fourteen fifteen budget year to high speed rail. And $50 million would go to other conventional um, statewide passenger rail projects um, in order to fund them and to help uh, to complete an integrated rail network. So it's, it's so competitive with so, such a need for, as, as we're seeing the demand go up and the people that are, the consumer is interested in helping offset this whole ramping up of the the carbon footprint with those emissions from the other choices. So it's really very uh, we we can see that there's a scramble for those and and three hundred million two hundred fifty million uh, is is a uh, far from the the many billion that keeps getting added onto the budget for the high speed rail, which is understandable as as it's a complex project with unforeseen factors uh, and and. It pays a headwind cost you in the project too. There, so I wanted to then bring up the extent to which the high-speed rail system would contribute to sprawl. It was an interesting point that a transportation economist is talking about. It it might make the commutes longer. If somebody can commute from uh, quickly, that means that they'll be willing to commute from a longer distance. How would this uh, high-speed rail deal with the inconsistency with the state bill 375, which is favoring compact development? We don't see our system as being inconsistent. We see our system as being as contributing to the consistency with SB 375. Um, Basically, what we're looking at planning uh, with the communities all up and down the system, we're looking at um, implementing good uh, long-term planning, essentially densification at the station location so that people could actually get to the stations using active transportation, either walking or bicycles, and then, frankly, being able to work wherever they needed to work in the state of California. Um, So what we're creating is an incredibly mobile workforce um, to help us move the state economy forward in the future decades. Um, and we're looking at creating, um, you know, live-work situations also at those specific station locations. So um, in terms of sprawl, we see ultimately our system as, as reducing the sprawl rather than contributing to it. So we know, Michelle, that densification will create a windfall for the the stakeholders with the, the the property adjacent to where the stops are going to be, where you're going to densify development. So uh, I don't, it, you can't identify those stakeholders yet for a contribution from them to support this expensive uh, project. But can, uh, but it, eventually you'll be able to make that, uh, I guess, assess those uh, beneficiaries of that uh, increased value in their properties to to aid in uh, in funding, as you as I can see where you're you're going here with this densification, then you're now creating a bimodal choice of uh, a pedestrian or a bicycle um, slash a rail connection to to get to one's destination. So, um, I but uh, is that part of your long term planning is to work with those um, abutters and and getting the value, recapturing some of the value. Uh, from them to help support the high-speed rail. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And in our uh, 2014 business plan, which is just uh, being released now and sent to the legislature for approval, we've identified some of these sources, as you mentioned earlier, um, the identification of private sources of capital to support um, the completion of the project. Value capture is definitely something that we're looking at with regards to opportunities for the future, opportunities for high-speed rail, and also for all of the communities that high-speed rail travels through. Um, so uh, you are absolutely correct um, that that is something that we're looking at. Uh, wouldn't want to miss that opportunity where, since the, the funds are so needed and uh, it, and those windfalls are so, so amazing, so awesome. So the, the, I, I want to give credit to as uh, the, the, the staff ha- for the high-speed rail, you, you included, Michelle, with the, without my sounding too obsequious, second time in my, my program today, that uh, first the, the uh, credit is due to the new board member, Catherine Perez-Estolano, and to you, that uh, people that are evaluating the high-speed rail planning and strategy uh, development that they're they're really impressed with the kind of of uh, you know heft that you're all bringing to this program so perhaps uh, you're going to be making uh, more viable this project in your interactions with the state legislature with the public I might add with the media I mean I'm going to try to do my part get other messages out there than just it's expensive end of story so uh, I, I you're all to be lauded for stepping up with a uh, real invigorated uh, uh, intellectual heft in in broadening and making this project really come to reality well I the high-speed rail authority is really proud of the advances that we've made um, in filling uh, and and completing, rounding out our staff over the last several years. Uh, One of the things, um, and and also um, uh, our board is amazing. I just want to give a little shout out to our board. Uh, We have experts on many different topics represented at our board. We have Catherine and her expertise in planning and value capture. We have experts in finance on labor, on environmental, um, on all of the things that this important project is going to need to come to fruition. And that expertise is represented on our full board right now. And so we are incredibly lucky to have such a capable board. And we have also then expanded the capability within our staff. We have created regional offices in Northern California, the Central Valley, and Southern California, so that we have staff located in the areas we're building the system, so that um, a staff with experience working in those areas in order to better understand the complexities of each of the different locations within California. Um, And we've basically doubled the staff um, of the authority over the course of the last year or so, and um, that is really changing the metric in terms of our ability to move this project forward and move it forward quickly. Well, I, I want, as I close here, Michelle Bame, I, I want to uh, wish all the efforts of everybody to, let's see, I'm getting a bit of an echo, I hope you aren't getting it, um, wish everybody, let's see. I'm not sure what's happening here. Uh, wish everybody the um, the best in 
in pulling this off because I know in your public pitches it's it's going to happen. It's not the same message we hear everywhere. And the Works Progress Administration, it happened, and those legacies uh, are everlasting. And this is even more expansive than some of the WPA kinds of projects. And I, I'm going to help out a little bit here. I'll put up the hsr.ca.gov contacts for people can uh, log in questions and comments. There's a Twitter account. I'll put that one up here. And I have to close now. We've we've run way past our time. I want to thank you, Michelle Bain, the Southern California Regional Director for the California High Speed Rail Authority, for your time on the program today. Thank you very much. Thank this you. This is a transformational project, and we very much appreciate your support. All right. Well, we appreciate you. All the best. Maybe we get an update in an, maybe a year and a half or two. How about that? Would love to. Okay. Thanks a lot. All the best. And we'll stay tuned. Well, we're going to give you some announcements about uh, what's going on today. Daphne Lay, uh, she's a UCI faculty. She's presenting an interesting and worthy forum here. Uh, uh, It's called Diversitopia, which I enjoyed seeing yesterday. So if you weren't lucky enough to get to the Janet Napolitano uh, talk that's going to be at 3 o'clock at the Student Union, uh, Daphne is going to serve up some interesting and necessary perspectives. A uh, previous guest of mine, Mark Chamberlain of BC Space, presents this weekend, July 5th uh, through July 5th, Vanishing Points, which features the work of three notable Southern California artists who focused on the changing complexion of rural America. Exhibition opens Saturday, uh, 6 to 9 o'clock, public's invited. BC Gallery, of course, is at 235 Forest Avenue in Laguna Beach. And then additional information I'll post on this, the podcast summary, or you can just call 497-1880. And then that's all the time we've got today for Ask a Leader. Next week, Orange County Registrar Voters Neil Kelly will join me to post everyone on the all-important changes on your primary ballot and the primary processes. Thank you for listening, everyone. Yeah.